Father, uh, as we just sang, uh, so we pray, we want you to fill our hearts with a hunger to know you and to love you and to live for you. And so we pray that as we come to your word, that you would do just that, that you would fill our hearts with a greater knowledge of you and a longing to know you more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've all experienced, I assume, I'm going to assume for a moment that you've all experienced it. You find yourself standing in a room or in a closet or at an open cabinet or most often at an open refrigerator staring blankly asking yourself, what did I just open this up for? What did I just come in here for? Right? It happens to all of us. Every single one of us has that moment where it's just like, I know I'm here for something. And, uh, and usually with the refrigerator, it's for something sweet, um, but we choose there to forget. Uh, but that, those moments, those times that we find ourselves at that place where we're just staring blankly, wondering what on earth am I doing? Those are those moments in our lives where we're reminded that we are a very forgetful people more forgetful than we would like to ever admit. We, we forget the mundane, right? We forget what we open the refrigerator for, but we also forget some of the most important things, right? We forget appointments. We forget birthdays. We forget anniversaries. We forget to call or write friends who are grieving or suffering. We forget to call our fathers on Father's Day. We forget to call our fathers on Father's Day. Next Sunday... It's Father's Day. Don't forget to call your fathers. Right? There's your reminder. We forget all kinds of things. Uh, the truth is we are fallen creatures that are prone to forget far more and far more often than we would like. And we need reminders. Sadly, it's not just true in the day-to-day -day of life. It's also true in our spiritual life. Sadly, as believers, one of the things that we forget most often is the thing that we need to remember the most. And that's the gospel. And so Peter, knowing this, knowing that this was true, not just of believers back in his day, but also would be true of believers throughout history, penned 2 Peter to remind them and to remind us of the gospel. Peter was, was nearing the end of his life. He, he says in chapter 1, verse 14, you can look there if you're already in 2 Peter, he says, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And so knowing this, Peter wants to leave the church with a reminder of the things that are most important. Right? Not only are these his last reminder, these are his last words to the church. It just gives an even greater weight to what he's saying. And what, is, what does he want to remind them of? Well, he, he wants to remind them of the truths of the gospel, and he wants to remind them of the promises of God's word. He's seeking not only to, to plant these truths in their minds, but to stir them up to action. Look at what he says in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. P 
Peter wants this church, he wants us to remember the truth and he wants to see us put the truth to work in our lives. He wants to see this church in particular stand firm in the face of false teaching and scoffers who had infiltrated the church. He wants to see them, as he says at the very end of his letter, grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. He knew that even though they knew these things, that they were prone to forget them. They needed to be reminded afresh so that they might persevere in the faith. And we need this reminder today just as much as they did then. And, and honestly, what better time to be reminded than now? After this season that we've been apart from one another for so long, and there's so much happening in the world around us that could cause us to easily lose sight of the gospel. So, so for the next two weeks, we're going to dig into the first 11 verses of 2 Peter. And, and in these verses... Peter is reminding us of the gospel, and he's doing it in in two different ways. In the first four verses, he's reminding us of the truths of the gospel, the fact that God has provided for us salvation. And then in verses 5 through 11, he's reminding us of the implications of the gospel for our lives, that this salvation that is ours is a salvation that is to be pursued. And so with that in mind... Grab your Bibles, if you haven't already, and let's jump in to 2 Peter. We're going to look at these first four verses and think about the salvation that God has provided us this morning. Here's what Peter says. Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So what Peter wants to remind us of these verses, of in these verses, is the gospel. Specifically, he wants to remind us of this. So this is what I think is the main idea of these four verses. In the gospel, Jesus has graciously granted to us all that we need to live for him now and to live with him forever. In the gospel, Jesus has graciously granted to us, provided to us, all that we need to live for him now and to live with him forever. And so I've got three points this morning that I want to use to, to unpack this reminder. And so we're going we're to consider three things, three aspects of the gospel that Peter reminds us of. The first is this, Peter reminds us first and foremost, of the glory of Jesus in the gospel. The glory of Jesus in the gospel. If you're like me, it's so easy to simply read the New Testament letters and jump right past the greetings. Right? The same way that we do in a letter or an email. Right? We just skip over the dear so-and-so and move on to the meat of the letter. 
But we know when it comes to God's word, every single word of it is inspired and profitable. Every single word's got a purpose. And we do ourselves a disservice, honestly, if we jump past these greetings too fast. And that's especially true here in 2 Peter, because if we jump over, if we gloss over the greeting, we actually miss out on a a profound glimpse at the glory of Jesus. It's a glory that Peter had seen firsthand. Right? Peter goes on to tell us in, at the end of chapter 1 that he had seen the glory and majesty of Jesus on the mountain. Peter knew the glory of Jesus. And it's a glory that he then wants to remind us of even as he begins the letter. So in, in these first two verses, Peter's going to remind us of Jesus' glory by referring to Jesus three different times and using four different titles as he does. So three references to Jesus, four different titles. It's unusual, but it's even more unusual in that this is not something that normally happens in the greetings of the New Testament letters. It's actually unusual even for a New Testament greeting where we get the name of Jesus mentioned at least once or twice. So look again at verses 1 and 2 and pay attention to the titles specifically that that Peter gives to Jesus. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Christ, God, Savior, Lord. And four different titles. And and you would think that in an introduction, in a greeting, Peter would be introducing himself. But what it really feels like here is that Peter's introducing us to Jesus rather than introducing us to himself. And, uh, and he does it with this, this title after title after title. And for those of you who've ever been to, well, it's, it's graduation season, if you've been to a graduation and heard the introduction of a speaker or any other event where someone's speaking and they're introduced and the, the person comes up that's introducing them and simply just lauds praise on them over and over and over again. We hear the titles that they've earned, the degrees that they have, all the things that they've done, why they're so wonderful, why they're so important, why you should listen to them. Right? And, and, and honestly, sometimes you get to the end of those and you think that the person that's going to walk out on stage is going to be glowing, right? Like they, they're just, they're that glorious. Well, Peter's doing that, but the, the reality is that Jesus actually is that glorious, right? Jesus does glow with the glory of God. And so these titles are intended to help us see how much he glows with the glory of God. So we're, we could consider all of four titles individually. We're not going to do that. I'm going to actually lump them together because I think they fit together. Um, and Peter intends to put them together. Uh, and so we're going to start with, with the first set. And, and that's where Peter reminds us that Jesus is, the, is Christ, our Lord. So you see he says Jesus Christ in the beginning and then our Lord at the end. Well, when you go through the rest of the letter, Jesus, or Peter's favorite title for Jesus is our Lord Jesus Christ. So he puts those two together, Lord and Christ. He always sticks them together uh, except for right up here, and he bookends even his introduction with them. So Christ, we start there. Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's, it's a title. It's a, a title that's not merely a tack on to Jesus' name either. It's a, it's a title that carried with it thousands and thousands of years of hope and longing and expectation. 
right? If you remember when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? It's Peter who steps up and declares that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Holy One of God. And it was because Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ, that he believed that Jesus deserved that title, that Peter was willing to leave everything he had and follow Jesus. So in calling Jesus the Christ, Peter's reminding us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the culmination of Israel's history, and not only Israel's history, but all of human history. He's the fulfillment of every single one of God's promises. He's the the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. He's the promised seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, Genesis 12.3. He's the promised son of David, the forever king whose rule and reign would know no end, 2 Samuel 7. And, And it's this kingship that Peter has in mind when he calls Jesus our Lord, there at the end of verse 2. As the Christ, Jesus rules over all. He reigns over all. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And that means that we are to serve him. We serve him because he's worthy of our service. Notice that Peter calls himself a servant before he calls himself an apostle. There in verse 1. A servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter was an apostle, but he thought of himself first and foremost as one who had been called to serve the King of Kings. That's the proper mindset for everyone who follows Christ. And I think it's easy for us to to forget and to fall into the mindset of thinking that Jesus is here to serve us, when in reality, it's us that exists to serve him. Sometimes we need to be reminded that Jesus is Christ our Lord. We need that glimpse of his glory to to reorient our hearts, to to recalibrate them, if you will, so that our selfishness is turned into service because that's what Christ asks of us, requires of us, and what he deserves from us. So Peter reminds us of the truth that Jesus is Christ our Lord. But he gives us an even greater glimpse of Jesus' glory at the end of verse 1. There he reminds us that Jesus is our God and Savior. This is one of the the clearest statements of the divinity of Jesus Christ in the entire New Testament. As, As one who walked with Jesus, who saw his glory and his majesty in the transfiguration, Peter has no hesitation whatsoever in calling Jesus God. He's more than happy to do that. Jesus is God in the flesh. And that truth is so, so crucial for our understanding the gospel, right? Because if Jesus is not God, there is no gospel. And so Peter reminds us here that our faith is obtained by the righteousness of our God and our Savior. It's his divine righteousness given to us, transferred to us, in the great exchange of the gospel, that's the source and the object of our faith. We've obtained a faith, he says there in verse 1, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He also reminds us in verse 3 that it's Jesus' divine power that's granted everything that we need for life and godliness. 
His power, his divine power is the source of our life. It's the means of our perseverance in the faith. His divine power, his sovereignty are also the source of our hope. They're the the guarantee that he's going to fulfill all of his very great and precious promises. The promise to make us like him so that we might live with him forever. If Jesus isn't God, then Christian, you have no hope. But he is God. And he's not just God, but he is our God, Peter tells us. And he's not just our God, he's our God and Savior. Right? He is, as my favorite song says, is holy God who in love became perfect man to bear our blame. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And only a divine savior, one who was fully God, could fully and finally deal with our sin. Only a divine savior can fully and finally guarantee our salvation. And that reality is so amazing. Jesus is God. Your Savior is your God. Your God is your Savior. That should never cease to fill us with awe and wonder. And so Peter here in these first few verses is reminding us that the gospel is all about Jesus. It's in the gospel that Jesus' glory shines forth the brightest. All these titles, Lord, Christ, God, Savior, the repetition of his name reminds us that ultimately the gospel is not a message about us. It's a message for us, but it's a message about Jesus, a message about him and his glory. And honestly, in a world where we're tempted to think a lot more about our own glory than we are his, this is a truth that we need to be reminded of. And so right off the bat, Peter reminds us of the glory of Jesus in the gospel. That's the first thing that he reminds us of. The second thing that Peter reminds us of is the generosity of Jesus in the gospel. So this is the second point, the generosity of Jesus in the gospel. Peter reminds us in these verses that in the gospel, this glorious Jesus generously gives us, grants to us, all of the riches of his grace. You you see it there in the repetition of the word granted. Right? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness there in verse 3 and then in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Jesus is God, and he's a God that gives to his people in abundance. And Peter reminds us that Jesus is granted to us, given to us graciously four specific things. First, He's granted to us an abundance of grace and an abundance of peace. We see that there in verse 2. To those who have obtained a faith of equal, sorry, not, yeah, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In verse 2, Peter's praying that grace and peace would be multiplied to these believers, ultimately to, to us as well. And that prayer assumes that they've actually already received grace and peace. 
right? You already have it. Now may it be multiplied to you. May you have more and more of it. And so we need to ask a question, what are grace and peace? Well, they're, they're gifts of the gospel. Grace is the loving favor of God to undeserving sinners. And that's what grace is. It's, it's unmerited favor from God. And peace, well, peace is so much more than an inner feeling of tranquility, right? It's, it's the objective reality of peace with God. In the gospel, we actually have peace with God. We've been given the gift of a right relationship with our creator. Grace and peace are ours in the gospel. They come to us through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So what then does Peter mean when he prays that grace and peace would be multiplied to his readers? Can God show us more favor than he already has? Is there a greater peace with God than we already have through the finished work of Christ? Well, the answer is obviously no. It's not the reality of those things that can be multiplied to us. It's our apprehension of them. It's our experience of the grace and peace of God that can be multiplied to us. And Christian, you, you can't know more grace than you've been shown in Christ, but you can know more of that grace and experience more of that grace. You can't know a greater peace than the peace with God that you've received in Christ, but you can know more and more of that peace and experience it in your life more and more day by day. To, to help us think about this, I want to give you an example, um, an illustration. It's not a perfect one. Um, and so, so my Narnia fans, please don't, don't email me. Um, but at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, after the last battle, so this is the, the last book, the last battle, night falls on Narnia. The old Narnia is, is destroyed. It's gone. And the, the kings and queens of Narnia witness the end of that world. And then they walk through a doorway into a new Narnia, into a true Narnia. And as they enter in, Aslan looks at them, and right before he darts off into the new world, he calls to them and says, come further up, come further in, come further up, come further in. And that refrain then just echoes throughout the last few chapters of the last battle as they explore this new world that's been given to them. Come further up, come further in. They've entered into a new world, this, this new reality, this new Narnia, and yet there's always gonna be more of it for them to see and to explore. Well, the grace and peace of God in the gospel, the gospel itself is like that. It's ours. We've, we've passed through the doorway of the gospel into the world of God's grace and his peace. And for the rest of our lives, we get to go further and further into that reality, further up and further in into the gospel. We get to know it more and experience more of his grace. We get to know more and experience more of his peace we get to walk in it, to marvel at it, to see it more clearly in every aspect and every area of our lives. So when Peter prays, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, he's praying that God, by his grace, would bring us further up and further in to the gospel. So Peter reminds us that in the gospel, in Jesus, we have an abundance, an exhaustible wealth, an inexhaustible wealth of grace and peace, one that's ours and yet one that we can know and experience more and more, but that's not the only gift. That's just the first one. In the gospel, he also grants us all that we need for life and godliness. I think for most of us, when we read this passage, this is where our eyes go. Right? This is the thing that, that we focus in on. It really is the heart of, 
of the passage. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And again, just notice the abundance of the gift, right? It's not some things that pertain to life and godliness. It's not a few things that pertain to life and godliness. It's all things that pertain to life and godliness. So this means that our our perseverance in the faith, our holiness, our growth in godliness, our inheritance of eternal life, even our faith itself, none of it is dependent upon our abilities, our efforts. It's all dependent upon the divine power of Jesus Christ. And that's the most wonderful news in the world because that means that our salvation is guaranteed. When it comes to life and godliness, his very power is at work in us, his divine power. And for us, his every resource is at our disposal. That's why he's given us his spirit. We have God himself at work in us. Uh, Every every summer, except for this summer, I've had the the privilege for the last, I guess, five years now to travel to East Asia. And and one of the amazing gifts of modern technology is Google Translate. So you take your phone with you, and now with Google Translate, you can hold your phone up, and you can face it at characters of a foreign language and tell it what language it is, and it translates it for you. Well, while we were there, I guess two years ago, three years ago, um, I discovered this sports drink that I really, really liked, loved, honestly. I think I would buy cases of it if I could and bring them back with me. Um, and, and we didn't know what the name of the drink was. And so we put the, the Google Translate up to it, and of all things, the drink that I love so much is called the power of God. That's the drink <laughs> that I love so much, the power of God, right? Um, and, and now we joke, you know, so when I drink this, all of a sudden I, my, my energy is renewed. I have the power of God, right, in me and at work in me. Well, the reality is, is that as a Christian, I don't need the drink, right? Because I already have the power of God in me and at work in me by his spirit. That's what Peter's telling us here in verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what does that mean? That means that if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ, you will grow in godliness. You will inherit eternal life. And how freeing and how wonderful is that truth? And so once again here, just as with the grace and peace that come to us in the gospel, the call to us is to take hold of what's already been given to us, what's already ours, right? To pursue life and godliness by God's grace, to to seek to walk by the Spirit day by day. Again, to come further up and further in to the reality of the gospel that's ours in Jesus Christ. We're going to think a lot more about that reality, specifically as it pertains to life and godliness next week. But in the gospel, Jesus grants us all that we need for life and godliness. That's a second gift, but that's, again, not all, right? I feel like I am on the prices right. That's not all, guys, not all. There's more. In the gospel, he also grants us his precious and very great promises. See that there in verse 4. And Peter tells us what some of these promises are as he walks through the letter. In verse 3, he tells us it's the promise of eternal life. In verse 4, it's the promise of Christ-likeness. 
And then at the end of the book, in chapter 3, he tells us that it's the promise of Christ's return. And that's just a few, right? There are so many more promises that come to us in the gospel. And think about this for a minute. Jesus promises to give us wisdom when we ask for it. James 1.5. Jesus promises to provide us with a way out of every temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Jesus promises to work all things together for our good. Romans 8.28. Jesus promises to finish the work that he's begun in us. Philippians 1.6. And maybe the greatest of them all he promises never to leave us or forsake us. Hebrews 13.5. And there are so, so many more promises. And, 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 and we, we can't forget, right, that the one that promises is God himself. I have to be really careful. I tend to like to promise a lot to my children that I often can't actually fulfill. And so my wife very graciously reminds me at times, don't say something if you're not 100% sure you can actually make it happen. Well, God's not like me, right? If he says it, Jesus is not like me. If he says it, he's going to make it happen. It's guaranteed. So these promises are precious and very great, not merely because of the promise, but more because of the one who promises our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord in Christ. Because he's God, he's not only able to deliver on these promises, they're guaranteed. He will deliver on these promises. And so by reminding them of the promises, Peter again is calling them and us to, to dive into the riches of God's grace, to go further up and further in, again, into the promises of God, to take hold of these promises afresh, to, to hold them more tightly today than we did yesterday. In the gospel, Jesus grants us so, so many precious and very great promises. And that's not all. Lastly, we need to consider the greatest gift of Jesus in the gospel, the most generous gift of Jesus in the gospel, and that's the gift of the knowledge of him. Notice how all these gifts we've considered so far come to us. Look, look again at the passage. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power, verse 3, has been granted to us, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness. Okay? He's granted to us his precious and very great promises, how do they come to us? It's through the knowledge of him, right? By which, it's that knowledge of him, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. All of the gifts of the gospel, all of these generous gifts of Christ come to us in, through, and by the knowledge of Jesus. That knowledge of him, it's the greatest gift of the gospel. It's the fountainhead. It's the source. It's the channel through which every single one of those gifts flows. It's the gift of gifts. 
and it, it truly is a gift, right? We're here because the triune God, creator of all things, in the person of Jesus Christ, has made himself known to us. Apart from him revealing himself to us, giving us knowledge of him, we would know nothing of him. We would know nothing of his salvation. We would know nothing of him at all. And yet he has graciously made himself known to us so we can see him as he is and we can see ourselves as we are. He opens our eyes to see not only who he is, but to see our need for him and our need for a relationship with him. And through the gospel, we come to know Christ as he is in all his glory and all his excellence, right? We, we come to know him as Christ our Lord, the eternal king who's worthy of our glad service. We come to know him as our God and our savior. It's important to note, though, that this knowledge is not merely knowledge about Jesus, right? It's not just head knowledge. No, it's, it, it's a lot more than that. It's a relational knowledge. Right? It's to know him intimately. It's to know him personally. It's to know him not just as Christ the Lord, but to know him as Christ my Lord. It's not just to know him as God and Savior, but to know him as my God and my Savior. And it's an experiential knowledge. And it's, a, it's a knowledge that we lean into. It's to lean into him, to look to him for all that you need, to look to him for grace and for peace and for life and for godliness and for the fulfillment of all of his promises. And brothers and sisters, this too is a gift into which Peter calls us further up and further in. We see that at the end of the book. You can just flip over a page or two. And in verse 18, Peter ends his letter by saying this, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a knowledge that we can grow into, further up, further in. Jesus makes himself known to us and then he calls us to know him more. And, and you think about it, it really is, the, that's the, the, the heart, the heartbeat of the Christian life. And there are so many things that we labor for, so many things that we work hard at, but there's no greater prize than that of knowing Christ. I, I love the way Paul puts it in Philippians 3, 8 through 10. He says this, he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He sums it up by saying this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Can you say with Paul that the great aim of your life is to know Jesus Christ? Would the, the people who know you best say that the great aim of your life is to know Jesus Christ? If it is, how are you seeking to grow in your knowledge of him? If it isn't, how do you plan to seek to grow in the knowledge of him? Let me offer just a, a few very practical suggestions. Uh, one is, is just obvious, but so, so important. Dig into the word of God. 
the Bible is the place where Jesus tells us who he is and what he's like. It's the place that we come to know him most fully. It's, it's one thing to say that you want to know Jesus more. And it's another thing to say that you want to know Jesus more. And because you want to know Jesus more, you're going to dig into his word. I've had more conversations with people that say, I really want to know Jesus. I want this experience of Jesus. And I ask the question, are you reading your Bible? And the answer is no. No, I'm not. How are you going to know Jesus if, if you're ignoring the one place that he's revealed himself to us most fully? If, if you're someone who is in the word and you feel like, I, just, I need some help. I need some help in thinking about how am I supposed to know Jesus more through the word? I want to just very practically suggest a resource to you. This book uh, by Mark Jones called Knowing Christ. It is a devotional book. Each chapter is about five pages. And all it does is go through everything that the Bible says, essentially everything that the Bible says about Jesus. So you can read this along with the word, look up the passages, and, and, and labor to know Christ more through his word. So we, we know him more through his word, but, but we also, and I think this is, this is one that I tend not to think about as much as I should, we also know him by living for him and speaking boldly for him. You've heard the old saying, right? You want to get to know someone, walk a mile in their shoes. Well, we can't exactly walk in Jesus' shoes, right? We're not God. And yet, Jesus does call us to take up our cross and follow him. And as we do that, as we take up our cross, as we follow him, as, as Paul puts it, we share in his sufferings, we get to know him. We get to know him on a much deeper level than we're ever going to know him if we seek to live happy, comfortable lives where we don't take up our cross and seek to follow him. So you want to know Jesus more. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And in the taking up of it, you're going to know me in a way that you'll never know me otherwise. And then lastly, I would say labor to know and love Jesus' people, the church. Because in them, we get to see something of him, right? Every single believer in this church body is filled with the spirit of God. The spirit is at work in them, producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things are Christ-like. And so as we see them exercising self-control, as we see their love for us, we get a glimpse of Jesus and what he's like. And so the more that we get to know and to love the church, the more that we're going to get to know and to love Jesus. Because he is the one who's at work in every single member of the church. If you're, you're here this morning and you are not a believer, I, I hope that you're hearing and I want you to hear that knowing Jesus is at the heart of what it means for someone to be a Christian. God has made himself known to us. He made us to know him, and he's now made himself known to us. And the amazing truth of the gospel is that we can know him personally. You can know Jesus. You can know God personally. You can know his generosity. Right? All of these amazing gifts are for those who know him. Knowing him is the way that we enter into his generosity. 
if you want to know him, you start by humbling yourself, saying to him, I am a sinner who is not worthy to call you my Lord, to call you my King, to call you my God, to call you my Savior. And you, you turn from your sin and you say, I want to know you. I want to know more of you, Jesus. And that's a prayer that Jesus delights to answer. If you're someone who says, well, I'm just not 100% sure I can get behind this idea that Jesus is who you say he is. I, I want to suggest to you, and I would love to give you a copy of this little book. Who is Jesus? By a friend of mine, Greg Gilbert. It is a, a very helpful resource for getting underneath some of these statements that you may have questions about that I've been making as we've been walking through. And so if you would like a copy of this, please grab me after the service. I would love to give you one. You can, you can know Jesus. We can all know Jesus. If you're a non-Christian, you can know him for the first time. Repent and believe. If you're a Christian, you can know him more deeply than you've ever thought that you could by pursuing him, by coming further up, by coming further in. Jesus is a generous and a gracious God. That's what Peter wants us to remember, that Jesus is glorious. He wants us to remember that Jesus is generous. And finally, he wants us to remember the goal of Jesus in the gospel. Why is it? Why is it that Jesus so generously gives these gifts to us? Right? What's the end for which all of his divine power is at work in and through us. Well, Peter tells us in verse 4, all of this is ours so that, right, verse 4, so that through these promises, through his generosity, through his grace, through the knowledge of him, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. So the goal of Jesus in the gospel is to make us like him so that we might live with him forever. Now I want to be clear here, what Peter means when he says become partakers of the divine nature. Sounds a little confusing. It's not that we somehow become divine, right? That we become gods. That's not what he's saying. No, what he means is that we become like him. We come to partake something of the divine nature. We become Christ-like. Right? That's what he's, he's getting at here. That's the goal towards which all of Jesus' divine power, all of his gracious gifts are working. They're working to make us like him. They're driving us toward the day that John speaks of in 1 John 3, 2, when he says we're going to be fully and finally, or we're going to be fully like him because we're going to see him as he is. Right? As we come further up and further in, we increasingly partake of the divine nature. We increasingly become like Christ. We exchange the corruptible for what's incorruptible. We become more and more like him and less and less like this world that is decaying and falling apart because of sin. We're not sinless, right? But by his grace, we will sin less. We will become more like him. We're becoming what we're eventually and eternally going to be. We're going to be like him so that we can live with him forever. 
That's the goal of Jesus in the gospel. That's the, the goal that we strive toward. It's the prize we run for as we run the race of the Christian life. And knowing how easy it is for us to look down at ourselves, to look around at the world, to lose sight of that prize, Peter reminds us that we're running for a reason. Right? We're running to become partakers of the divine nature. So Peter reminds us of the goal of Jesus in the gospel, the generosity of Jesus in the gospel, and the glory of Jesus in the gospel. Why? Because he knows that we're prone to forget. He doesn't want us standing still, staring blankly at the world, trying to remember why we're here, the way we do when we come downstairs and look at the refrigerator going, what what on earth am I here for? No, he wants us running hard after Christ. He wants us to remember the gospel, to come further up, to come further in. And so, friends, let's pray now that by his grace, he would help us do just that. Let me pray. Father, we are, again, so grateful for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you for this glimpse and this reminder of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, of his generosity, of his goal for our lives. Father, we do pray that you would help us as we seek to come further up and further in, that we might know him more, that we might be like him so that we can be with him forever. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.